we have two scripture readings for today. The first from the Old Testament, from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 60, beginning with verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from far away, and your daughter shall be carried on their nurse's arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. And then our gospel reading, traditional story for this particular Sunday from Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened. And all Jerusalem with him, and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage." When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, and it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They left for their own country by another road. This is the word of God for the people of God. January the 6th, this coming Thursday, is the day of Epiphany on the calendar of the church year, the Christian year. The day of Epiphany marks the conclusion of the Christmas season, the end of the 12 days of Christmas, if, if you observe that. And beginning of the season of Epiphany, and Epiphany will continue through March 1st, Shrove Tuesday, and then we move into the season of Lent on Ash Wednesday, March the 2nd. The traditional scripture lesson associated with this day is the visit of the wise ones from Matthew 2. The wise men, sometimes referred to as kings in the hymn and in other places, were probably Persian astrologers. We have always assumed there were three of them because three gifts are mentioned, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And considering the distance these men had traveled and taking into account verse 11 of our passage, which said they went into the house to see Mary and the child, it's highly unlikely that they were present in the stable on the night of Christ's birth at first Christmas. It doesn't mean that we need to rewrite some of the better known Christmas hymns and Christmas carols. It doesn't mean we should run and remove the wise men from our nativity sets, the beginning of Christmas. None of those kind of things. And it doesn't mean that we should abandon the custom of giving gifts at Christmas, which some people attribute to the bringing of the gifts of the wise ones so long ago. It does mean that our understanding of this story has something to do with distance and times and spaces. Tradition has taken the liberty of naming these three persons, Caspar, Malchior, and Balthazar. Strictly a tradition. It's not a biblical kind of thing, but I guess it could have been. Now, for the next few minutes, I want to look at this story from the perspective of worship, how it influences, how it informs the way we worship, and then say just a little bit about gifts, about practical gifts and gifts that don't seem very practical. And then to mention briefly, but really so important at this time of year, the light and the way the light has always and will always overcome the darkness in our world and, and in our hearts. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. They traveled a long way to worship the child who had been born king of the Jews. Church growth experts sometimes employ a phrase called average trip time. They tell us that most folks will not travel any further on Sunday than they will travel during the week to work or to school or to the grocery store or wherever they're headed. And to this documented observation, they add most folks will pick a church building to worship in that is somewhere along their normal lines or their normal routes of travel. Now, some of that has changed, but much of that is still true. And there are exceptions to the rule, of course. The wise men were an obvious exception. They traveled quite a distance. They came from a far piece, so to speak, to be in Jerusalem where the star had led them. And then the star led them to the house where the child was after they left Jerusalem. Not their ordinary avenues of travel, but responding to what they believed was divine leading. The point here really has nothing to do with maps and geography. If the question were asked, did the wise men travel, how far did they travel to worship the Christ? Well, you couldn't answer that question simply by going out to the driveway and checking the odometers on their camels. It wouldn't tell you much. The truth is they traveled a great distance to get from where they were to where this child was. They had to cross the boundary of racial, religious, and cultural exclusiveness. They were Gentiles. The child was Jewish. They had to cross the boundary of selfishness. Certainly the money they spent on these gifts could have been spent on gifts for themselves or for their families or to influence someone. They had to travel beyond the bounds of laziness. There were no chauffeured climate controlled limousines in that day. They had to cross the boundary of busyness. 
How many hours did they miss? I mean, they were astrologers after all. How many hours did they miss consulting with politicians and movie stars and other folks helping to read the stars and uh, talk about Zodiac and all those kind of things, if that's the kind of astrologers that they indeed were, probably not just like that. But others had made similar trips. If you look in the Old Testament, the story of Ruth, how many boundaries were crossed there? How many religious and cultural boundaries for God's will to be worked out? And other stories in Scripture of those who had crossed boundaries and borders to get to where God had called them to be. How many boundaries do we cross week in and week out to come to a place where we can worship Jesus Christ? The house where the wise men came to was a sacred place because the Christ child was there. Is this house sacred for the same reason? Do we experience Jesus the Christ in this place when we gather to worship? If there's sincere prayer and praise offered, he's here. If there's genuine concern offered for one another and support in this place, then he is here. And if there is love for all others, even or especially those outside these beautiful walls, he is here among us. And this is a sacred place. If we are honestly striving to love those with whom we disagree and see life religiously, politically, and otherwise differently, if we are honestly striving to love one another, he's here. If we are intently listening for a word from God to speak to the hurts and the hopes in our life, then he's here. They fell down and worshiped him. Under the larger heading of spirit and truth, there are several subheadings, many ways to express ourselves as we worship. For some folks, worship is a very emotional kind of experience with an emphasis on outward expression. Anything pre-planned or pre-printed is anathema. They want nothing to do with that. But for other folk, unless they can hold a prayer book in their hand and follow strict guidelines, then it's not worship. For most of us, worship falls somewhere in between. We do like our hymnals and our bulletins to give us direction. I believe it was Dr. William Holmes Borders, Wheat Street Baptist Church in Atlanta years ago. Large, strong church. And he used to say that he would pray on Sunday, Lord, let something happen here today that's not in the bulletin. The important element, I believe, in any worship is not style so much is it's a matter of the heart. When we can put our own agendas aside and seek God's will and God's agenda for our lives, then worship, real worship can happen. The wise ones came to Jesus, but it was God who revealed God's self to them through the child. And that's why we use this passage in conjunction with epiphany. Epiphany means to reveal, to pull back the curtain, to show us what God has in store for us. And in this story, God is revealing God's self to these wise ones through a child. And then that's kind of backwards from the way we sometimes interpret it. That's God showing out for these folks. That's the significance of epiphany for us. What is God going to reveal to us and show to us in this time of worship, in this new year as it unfolds? Where will our epiphanies occur? Pay attention and listen. Then opening their 
treasures, they offered their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were not some kind of markdown, 50% all family dollar week after Christmas gifts that they had picked up on their way to Jerusalem. These were significant gifts. These were the finest expressions of love that they could find in their day and time. Valuable, valuable gifts. No cheap trinkets did they offer, but the very best. And so when we assemble to worship, the important thing is not the exact amount of our gifts. The important thing is, do we come here offering the very best that we have to offer to the God who loves us and redeems us? If we're offering our very best, it's always enough. And if we're not, then we need to have a conversation with ourselves and ask, why not? Practical gifts. Let's, let's think about that for just a minute. The value of practicality, gold and frankincense and myrrh didn't seem very practical gifts, did they? Someone has said, and you've heard this before, and I don't mean anything harmful by it, but if any of the wise men had been women, they would have brought diapers and wipes and towels and blankets and soap and practical stuff. Or somebody would have brought something to eat. I mean, it's not mentioned, but you would think after the difficult journey and the difficult night they had had, bringing a baby into the world, folk had to be hungry. Practical gifts. What is a practical gift? But any gift, practical or impractical, can make a difference, can it, if it's given in a spirit of love? Go back when you get a moment and read Gifts of the Magi by O. Henry and, and think about the great love in that story. And then something else that I learned a few years back to learn to think about anyway. There's no proof of it. But Mary was her name, and Joseph and the child would soon have to flee King Herod. He was going to destroy all the children, male children, two and under in that area. And we talk about that as the flight to Egypt, the journey to Egypt to save the child's life. Well, these were poor folk. How do you pay for that kind of travel? Maybe you trade or sell gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's just a thought. They departed to their own country by another road. They took another road home, different from the one they had come in on. But more importantly, they were not the same people returning as they had been when they showed up there. They had encountered Jesus the Christ, even as a child. And how could they possibly go back the same way that they came? If we come to worship with a negative or a critical attitude, offering very little of ourselves or our resources, then we're probably going home the same way that we got here. But if we come to worship with open hearts and open minds, expecting to encounter Jesus the Christ, then we will be changed for the better and we will return to our homes by another way. The wise ones, probably astrologers, were guided by the star. A bright, unusual, different from all the other stars kind of stars. Maybe a conflagration, a, a coming together of more than one star. Maybe a comet, as some have suggested. But a bright star that got their attention. Are we being guided by the light as we come to worship? And as we worship, or are we stumbling around, relying on lesser lights, 
that cannot overcome the deep darkness that some days threatens to engulf this world. In him was life, is life, and his life is our light. The light shines in the darkness, as John's gospel reminds us, and the darkness has yet to overcome it. Isaiah 60, one through six, we read earlier, reminds us that God's brightest light often shines in the darkness, the deepest darkness. There's another reference in scripture to land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, those two tribes and those regions of the land back in that day of Israel were up north. And that's where many of the international highways crossed through. And almost anybody who could scare up an army and blow through that area could capture those people and make them their slaves. Deep darkness, they lived with that kind of fear. And where there was the deepest darkness, God brought the greatest light. That's where Jesus spent most of his ministry, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali. There's deep darkness in this world, but there's hope in knowing that as we move into a new year, regardless of how deep the darkness becomes, it doesn't have a chance against the light of the world, our light, our life, Jesus the Christ, our Savior. Amen.